Eddie Glaude Jr. is the chair of Princeton University's Department of African American History. His most recent book is Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. A 2019 clip of him speaking on MSNBC began circulating again in the wake of the November election, highlighting the through lines of racial injustice in our society. On this episode of Created Equal, my conversation with Eddie Glaude Jr. It was founded on the principle We hold these truths to be self-evident That all men are created equal That all men are created equal All men are created equal So I want to start by listening to just a little bit of that clip from uh, MSNBC. I, I think it might be hard for some people especially white people, to understand what you mean when you are talking uh, in this clip that we're going to hear about setting them free from uh, being white. But let's take a listen really quickly. I've had the privilege of growing up in a tradition that didn't believe in the myths and the legends because we had to bear the brunt of them. Either we're going to change, Nicole, or we're going to do this again and again, and babies are going to have to grow up without... Mothers and fathers, uncles and aunts, friends, while we're trying to convince white folk to finally leave behind a history that will maybe, maybe, or embrace a history that might set them free from being white. Finally. Finally. I mean, it's such powerful language and, and phrasing. Set white people free, white America free, from being white. Exp- Explain what that means when you say that. Well, you know, one of the revolutionary uh, uh, effects of James Baldwin's work is that he flips the script. Mm -hmm. That the problem isn't us. That America's original sin isn't slavery or it isn't uh, the genocide of Native peoples. America's original, original sin is the price of the ticket to become American, and that is to become white. So whiteness is this idea that, or it contains this idea that, that some lives ought to be valued more than others. And it's precisely that belief that leads to the devaluing and disregard of other lives. And so when you tell yourself a story uh, that solidifies this understanding, this self-understanding, it leads you to, to deny the humanity right in front of you. And in some ways, I think... Um, uh, it sets the stage for you to become monstrous. So Baldwin is is constantly trying to get white America to understand that the problem doesn't lie outside of them. It lies with this notion of whiteness that is so central to their self their self identity, and that's what I was trying to channel. I had actually just finished writing a passage for Begin Again when I was on when I was on Nicole's show, mm. and I was actually channeling Baldwin in that moment. Yeah. Uh, so walking away from being white, what what would that look like? I, I would love for you to talk to our listeners about the practical implication of of a phrase like that. How how do you do that? Well, you know, it's it's this ongoing work of of interrogating the way in which whiteness comes to us as natural as language. You know. Hmm. I'm thinking about this moment in Wendell Berry's wonderful little book, The Hidden Wound. Mm -hmm. And Wendell Berry, who's this Kentucky-born writer who grapples with his own racism, is trying to suggest that as a person who has grown up 
uh, in the South who who has an, absorbed in a, and 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 taken in this language of racism that comes na- as I said as natural to him as language that he has to engage in this ongoing work of deconstructing it, right? So it's a matter of understanding the way in which what I call the value gap distributes advantage and disadvantage and trying your best to be aware of it and to fight against it, knowing that you're going to falter. So, you know, Baldwin makes this distinction, Stephen, between people who happen to be white and white people. And I happen to love a lot of people who happen to be white. And those are those folks who are engaged in this ongoing work of deconstructing a society predicated on the value gap. White people are those folks who are okay with it. They're fine with it, you know, accruing the benefits of a society predicated on the notion that white people ought to be valued more than others. So how does one do it? In short, one just has to be conscious and deliberate, engaging in in, in the hard work of trying to imagine oneself in fuller and more expansive terms. Mm. You know, I, I feel like one of the difficulties in in that particular struggle is that for many white people, uh, th- there is no there's no real awareness of the advantage of the privilege that they have. That that despite the overwhelming evidence that their lives are valued more than others, that uh, that other people struggle with built-in disadvantages that they have never faced. They don't really see those things. Uh, they, they can't see us. Uh, and so it becomes, it becomes a matter of how you even, how you even bring awareness to the situation uh, yeah. in, 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 as well as intention. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's a, that's a generous read <laughs> in the sense that they don't <laughs> That they don't see us. It's a kind of willful ignorance. Uh, what what some philosophers call epistemic ignorance. You know. You know. And I'm sorry to be quoting Baldwin so much, but you know, Baldwin talks about this in the Fire Next Time, yes. right? In this yes. letter to his nephew, where he's trying to address very clearly that you know, as he says, "And I know which is much worse, and this is the crime of which I accuse my country and my countrymen, and for which and for which neither I nor time nor history." will ever forgive them, that they have destroyed and are destroying hundreds of thousands of lives and do not know it and do not want to know it. Right. And then he says, but it is not permissible that authors of devastation should also be innocent. It is the innocence which constitutes the crime. And then later, just that's in 63, in 1972, he writes in No Name in the Street, quote, white America remains unable to believe that black America's grievances are real. They aren't able to believe this because they cannot face what this fact says about themselves and their country. And the, f- the effect of this massive and hostile incomprehension is to increase the danger in which all black people live, especially the young. So part of what we have to do is say, they, it's not that they cannot see. They won't it's see. That they refu- exactly. Exactly. And part of our work is to bear witness, is to press the case, is to is to relentlessly attack this willful ignorance, right? Um, in, in a way that, that can, can ex- expose and disclose the lie at the heart of it all, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. 
This is Created Equal. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. After a quick break, more of my conversation with Eddie Glaude. I'm Ian Delisi. I'm Rob Reinhardt. And we're about to bring back the perfect opportunity to honor your favorite pet and support WDET. During our spring fundraiser, Ann and I will combine our shows so you can honor your dog. Or your cat. Or your dog. And WDET with a gift of support. We're looking forward to hearing about your pets, no matter what kind of cat that is. Cats and dogs and any other pet you may have will be part of our fundraiser. And if you can't wait till the weekend, make your gift now at WDET.org slash give. Or call 800-959-9338. Junior. Before we even go further, I, I want to remind our audience that the clip we listened to from you being on MSNBC was actually from way before the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and way before the civil unrest that we've experienced this year in reaction to that, before the pandemic that has absolutely ravaged black and brown communities. Uh, And of course, you were saying it before this crazy election. And I I think that's important to note because in, in some ways, People, I think, want to want to gravitate toward the idea that this is uh, episodic. That, in other words, that that the things that we're seeing unfold are about the things that are happening to us now, and that they are stripped of uh, context or or attachment to history or or, or foundation. Uh, and and that's just, I mean, it's not true. Uh, but it's one of the hardest things, I think, to get people to acknowledge uh, and react to. It, it is part of the problem of seeing, right? Um, that, well, these are things that, that just are happening now, and uh, we don't have this kind of obligation to deal with and talk about and identify them uh, consistently across time. Yeah, you know, what was so... What's so amazing about the kind of recirculation of that clip is that, you know, that that those comments were in response to what happened on August 3rd of 2019. And mm-hmm. that is the El Paso shooting. Right. And I was on the panel with a colleague who was from El Paso. And every time he talked, Stephen, he, he could barely hold himself together. He was on the verge of tears. And and I was just getting angrier and angrier and angrier because, you know, the, the, the constant pearl clutching, the constant question, is this America? Mm. Is this who we are? Um, and, you know, every generation, you know, in several moments within one generation, uh, people are asking that damn question. And it fr- while we have to bear the brunt, right, of, 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 of their willful denial. And so part of our work is to not allow Americans to be ahistorical, not allow us to be, to decontextualize the moment, um, to see it as a one-off instance, but really to kind of map, uh, in some ways, as best we can, uh, the context that produces this. I mean, I was sitting there trying to figure out, you know, there, I said two-year-old, it was a two-month-old baby killed. You know, a two-month-old baby, her parents were killed. 
because they were trying to protect her. You know, for what? Yeah. Right? So these people can be white? So these people can protect this idea that this nation is a white nation in the vein of old Europe? How long must we go through this, continue to go through this? So um, I, I hope that's a response. I was just trying to contextualize what that what I was responding to in August of 2019 and what we're responding to now in November of 2020 and how that same video footage can still have resonance across those t- across these two moments. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, you... you, you posed that question or brought that question up that we hear all the time, is this America that we hear people asking after, you know, horrible things happen that that uh, people say they can't believe would happen in a nation as, as wealthy and, and uh, as, as privileged as, as this. And I mean, I, I, I think some of what that is about is and maybe this is naive, but but uh, I, I would prefer to call it maybe optimistic. I, I, some of that is about aspiration, right? Some of that is mm. about this is supposed to be the, the the greatest country on on the planet. This is supposed to be a place where everybody has equal opportunity. And there is kind of a natural tension, I think, between that ideal, and the practice of it uh, over the last 240 some years that uh, that for some people is maybe too much to countenance. In other words, it's just too difficult for them to even fathom that we haven't achieved uh, all of those things. And so they say things like, "Is this is this America? How can this how can this be America?" And I think the opportunity perhaps there. Is to is to jump on that uh, that very sentiment and say, yeah, this is this is the country that you created that you benefit from in so many ways. Uh, but yeah, we all do want to create something much better. It's not that uh, it's not yeah. the criticism of uh, of what happens here is is saying we don't want it. It's that it's just been a it's been a lie we've been told for so long. Yeah, I mean, I think you're 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 hitting an important point here, and that is the efficiency of American exceptionalism as an ideology. Mm-hmm. Right? It it allows us to to contain our ugliness, right? To always narrate it in terms of the inevitable progress toward a more perfect union. So the American ideology consistently allows us to let ourselves off the hook. Right. So the question is a perennial question of is this America because of that aspirational claim that is built into the very self-understanding of who we are as Americans. Right. So if we're already the shining city on the hill, as Reagan, you know, added the adjective to John Winthrop's <laughs> phrase, America is the city on the hill coming mm-hmm. from Augusta. Right. If we're already the shining city on the hill, if we're the redeemer nation, an example of democracy achieved, then then the idea of a more perfect union involves. Right. In some ways, our march, our ongoing march to to perfection, right? We might never achieve it, but it's it's destined, right? And so, in that sense, America's special charge protects us from the actual evidence to suggest otherwise. And so, part of what we have to do is deconstruct this exceptionalism. You know, again, you know, on page one hundred and one in the Fire Next Time, Baldwin hits this 
dead on the head, and I was channeling it in the in the in the clip you you passed. That I come out of a tradition that never had to believe in the myths, the beliefs, believe in the myths and the legends because mm-hmm. we had to bear the burden of them. Right? Baldwin writes, the American Negro has the great advantage of having never believed that collection of myths to which white Americans cling. That their ancestors were all freedom-loving heroes, that they were born in the greatest country the world has ever seen, or that Americans are invincible in battle and wise in peace, that Americans have always dealt honorably with Mexicans and Indians and all other neighbors or inferiors, that American men are the world's most direct and virile, that American women are pure. Negroes know far more about white America than that. Right. And so so the idea and this is why, you know, I, I'm talking too much, but this is the I, you know, no, no, no. That's why, the whole point. <laughs> no, but Stephen, you know, that re- this is the reason why, you know, when Fourth of July was first when, when the country first started celebrating Fourth of July as Independence Day, because it used to be the day in which the American Colonization Society raised money to in order to ship free black folk out of the country. When we showed up at these early Fourth of July celebrations, we would literally be attacked. Yes. Because our bodies represented the contradiction of what was being celebrated. So you're right to say it's aspirational. And you're right to say that we must relentlessly deconstruct it in the name of a different kind of aspiration. right? The aspiration to be together differently, not predicated upon this idea of America as somehow a shining city on the hill. No, 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 no. We need to imagine America differently, it seems to me. So I want to I, I want to ask you about this moment in American history and what we've seen from Black Lives Matter, which has now become much bigger than a protest. I mean, it really is a movement, and this word that people keep using about what's going on, reckoning, which suggests progress. It suggests an effort, a real effort, to examine some of the things that that don't match up with uh, the the promise of of America and to fix them. Uh, But the people we need to make change aren't really tuned into this conversation. I mean, they're off doing other things and they are blind and in some cases willfully blind to what to what needs addressing. So, 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 how do you how do you use a word like reckoning, e- even in this moment? How do you make that word uh, into action and into change when you have the people who are responsible for that change, the people who need to make the change, not really engaged uh, engaged in the work? Well, I mean, I think. I mean, it's it's a difficult task, obviously, but it seems to me that uh, we have to be careful uh, and and say something like this. That is to say, not not all people are willfully ignorant. I mean, I made the distinction between those who happen to be white and those who are, mm-hmm. and I said I love some people who happen to be white. I love them deeply. Um, and so part of what I want us to do is to, is, is to take, uh, uh, um, take in what we saw during the protests, that it wasn't just us out there, uh, that there were a wide range of folk. And, and they might have been out there for a variety of reasons, but we saw a cross-section of America out in the streets risking their lives uh, to protest what happened to George Floyd and what happened to Jacob Blake and, 
and what happened to Walter Wallace, and we can go on, Breonna Taylor, we can go on and on and on. So there, so when we talk about a reckoning, it, it doesn't require that the entire nation is, you know, experiences it individually, right? The reckoning confronts the nation with the reality of its contradiction, hmm. like we're all experiencing the contradictions of neoliberalism right now. Like we're all experiencing the devastation of COVID, even though individually most, a lot of us don't have it, but we're feeling it, right? And so the reckoning is not uh, something that each individual American should experience in her own in her own way, right? But it's it's this general kind of experience. And, mm. and what I'm trying to suggest here, let me tell you what I have in mind, Stephen. I have in mind what SNCC was trying to do back in the day. Mm-hmm. So if the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, they're organizing in the Delta of Mississippi, and, you know, they get two, three farmers, two, two or three sharecroppers to agree with them to do what they're doing, they could shake that, they could shake the world of that county. They didn't have to get all, everybody. They don't have to get everybody, right. Right. You see what I mean? So if we, if we, the relative few of us, can begin to engage in this fundamental assessment and uh, of who we take ourselves to be and, and imagine being together differently and then bring pressure to bear. We can change this society, I believe. I have to hope that. Otherwise, I'll drink too much Irish whiskey. <laughs> right? What, what else is there if you have no hope at all? <laughs> <laughs> That was my conversation with Princeton University Department of African-American History Chair Eddie Glaude Jr. He's the author of the book, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. On the next episode of Created Equal, my conversation with Maria Hinojosa, host of Latino USA and author of the book, Once I Was You, a memoir of love and hate, in a torn America. As immigrants, we do in fact have this expectation about this country, right? We buy into this, you know, we're the world's greatest democracy and here's the thing, we are as long as we're all active in it. Created Equal is a production of WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Our executive producer is Joan Cherry Isabella. Our producers are Jake Neer, Anna Marie Seisling, and Claire Brennan. Our sound engineers are Matt Trevethan and Rowan Niamisto. Our composer and senior editor is Sam Bobian. And our social media and digital assets are done by Maida Stangi and Tony Brown. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson.